Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. We're beginning a new sermon series entitled Overthrow in which we're going to discuss the radicalizing letter that St. Paul mailed to the church in Ephesus. For some of you, the letter is familiar. For others, not so much. But whether it's familiar or not, I hope that we discover the deep terrain of the letter. And I hope that we're all moved by it and helped by it and cultivated by it. Uh, And I'd like to uh, begin uh, with the author's opener, uh, which you could spend 20 sermons on this passage, but you don't have the patience and I don't have the energy. So, uh, but we are going to deal with this, uh, this prologue from St. Paul and in which he really does communicate the gift of God's intrusion, the gift of God's intrusion. Uh, And intrusion, it's a complex matter because many times intrusion or interruption is very good, very helpful. Sometimes that happens, you know, with a pregnancy. You weren't expecting it, but here it is. So life's going to take a whole new turn now. That's often a happy experience. Also, an inheritance is a nice experience. Whenever you have some wily, uh, uh, slightly crazy old uncle who dies in, like, Portland, and you didn't know this, but he is going to give you $80,000. I mean, I don't have any of those people in my life, but I wish I did. That'd be really useful. That's a happy day. Or maybe you've received an award at work, or you were, you were asked to be professor of the year, or awarded that. That's a big deal. And other times, interruptions are terribly uh, distressing and just awful. I'm remembering, especially later this week, the anniversary of 9-11, in which, you know, our internationalist policies changed, how we spend money changed, how we, how we think about other nations and terrorism changes. I mean, it's, it's very complicated and very sorrowful. And even the reality of COVID, you know, I was so dumb, I have to tell you. Just in the beginning of this whole mess, I was telling Eric, you know, give this thing three weeks and it'll totally blow over. I can't wait to have Easter together. Yeah, it didn't work out, you know. <laughs> and, and now there's all these new strains, and but so much has changed, right? And so much of the future remains unknown because of this cloud that's hanging over us. Um, well, in this letter... We read about an intrusive author and his intrusive God. And I'd like to really preach two sermons about this prologue, one this Sunday and one next. And today I want to talk about the intrusive author and his intrusive God. And next Sunday I'll talk about the effect of that intrusion. Um, But let me just now speak about this author, this author. Have you ever wondered what gives Paul the right? Why does he get to write letters to the whole world? Why does he get to be the Mediterranean pen pal that nobody asked for? Like, why is it that he gets to tell you what to think and how to feel and what to do? I mean, I don't presume to do that to all Grove City or Western Pennsylvania. Dear Western Pennsylvania, I have some ideas that I'd like you to consider, you know, thus and such. Hugs and kisses, Ethan. Like, I would never presume to do that, and neither would you if you, you know, balance your meds. So, like, so what about Paul? Like, what about this man? What, why does he intrude? 
the question is made even more complex because of his own complex personal history. I mean, this guy, this guy, right? Uh, he, he was born Jewish, but he was also a Roman citizen. So that creates all sorts of inner tumult. The Roman citizen bit was a gift from his daddy. Uh, he was a man of both worlds because like so many Romans, he was very cosmopolitan. Very cosmopolitan. He uh, grew up in Tarsus, which is a massive city in Turkey. He studied there. There were many academies and libraries and functional museums, and it was a place for arts and markets and so forth. And he, but he was also kind of a rough guy, like a man's man. You know, he had a day job, and it was making tents. Like he worked with like leather and and animal skins to um, make some money. Uh, and not only was he kind of a man's man and a hard worker, he was really intelligent, hyper-intelligent. He was sort of a blue-collar, white-collar kind of guy. He studied under the Ph.D. supervisor of his day, who was a canon attorney for Judaism. His name was Gamaliel, very famous, even outside Christian sectors, very, very famous and impressive man. Because of his education and his Judaism, uh, he became more and more religiously transfixed as he aged, uh, to the point where in his mid-20s, uh, he, he thought it would be okay to become a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a party within Judaism that took the law and the Midrashic portion of their tradition, that's all the unwritten stuff that wasn't included in the Torah and the Bible. That he took that all very seriously. He was very worried, very fidgety very worried and nervous that his nation could be exiled again or have heaped, uh, or, you know, that they would be heaped with more abuse from external kingdoms and pagans. He was nervous about that. So he thought if you were really obedient to the law, you would be better off and God wouldn't punish you by walloping you with other countries. Right? And, and because of that concern, he became a little bit jihadist, like little bit of a jihadist. He thought that he could smash cults through violence, and so if people took Judaism and ran with it in a, in a wrong way or an errant way, he would be the guy to chase them down and make them repent or just kill them. But he thought he was doing God a real service. So here's this man, and we know later, get into this in a bit, that he meets the risen Christ, and even later than that, he visits Ephesus in Turkey, and he lives in Turkey for three years from eighty. 53 to 56, and after that, in the early 60s, he writes this letter. And so what makes this one human being with his weird upbringing authoritative, not just in the first century, but right now? Well, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul begins with an assertion of his own authority. And I'd like you to take up your bulletin, and let's read verses 1 and 2, because we'll hear his assertion. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he does right from the start. He says, you need to listen to me. Why? Because I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, here's what's a little weird about that. He wasn't one of the original apostles, right? Jesus collected around himself during his earthly ministry 12 men, and Paul was not numbered among them, not on the team. Well, Judas hangs himself, doesn't end well. 
And then they replace Judas with this guy named Matthias in Acts chapter 1. And so now they have their 12, their big number again. But they didn't elect Paul. Uh, and so Paul didn't become an apostle or a sent one. That's what apostle means. He didn't become an apostle through the other apostles voting him into the club. They didn't look at his gifts and talents and say, we want this guy. Not so much. Paul, in fact, opposed not only Christ, but his apostles early on in his life. So he's not your ideal candidate for that role. And yet now, in his, own, in his opening words, Paul claims to be in the inner sanctum. I have the authority of an apostle. In fact, I am an apostle. And he makes an even more outlandish claim. I'm an apostle because God made me one. I'm an apostle because of God's will. It was God's will that I have this title. How does that sound to you? I'm just curious, you know? Because a statement like that usually makes me a little suspicious. Like whenever somebody says, God told me, I run away in my heart. I mean, I'm still there nodding because I'm nice. Like I'm nice most of the time. I'm, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I nod, but in my heart, I'm bolting. Uh, because I always want to ask them, how do you know that? God told me it's God's will. You know that? Really? You know that for sure. Like, it's not your, just your imagination. It's not just your subjectivity. It's not just your psychology reaching out for some sort of validation, right? Or you don't stamp your opinions with God's name to give them more credibility. Or that's not what's going on, right? Like, it's very real. This is God speaking to you. So I'm suspicious, and maybe you are too, because it's so subjective. In fact, it was this guy in the early 90s named uh, Neil Walsh. He wrote three books called Conversations with God, and this is what this person did. He, like, put his pen to paper, and he says, Okay, God, guide my pen. Give me ideas. And so he wrote three books, multi-millions, you know, coming into his bank account, and millions of books sold, right? Conversations with God. I don't, I don't think you should buy it, but that's just my opinion. Um, but so, so my question is, how did Paul know that it was God's will for him to be the world's pen pal? How did he know? Well, here's how he knew. Paul based his credibility and authority as an apostle not upon a private hunch. He didn't have a private hunch. He didn't have a whisper in his heart or, bad translation, a still small voice. Nope. No, instead, he was the witness of a public and historical miracle, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, many of you know Paul's uh, turntable story, right? He, in his late 20s, woke up on a sunny day and he thought to himself, you know, it feels like a good day for some jihading. <laughs> And so he went to the city of Damascus with, with some buddies, and they were planning on getting out some machetes and doing some damage to a cult that was known as the Way or the Christians. And before he could get to the city, he was struck uh, with, a, with a, a magnificent and miraculous vision of the risen and ascended Jesus. And the risen and ascended Jesus spoke to Paul and said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul was dumbstruck, but found some words and said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Stop it. Well, the stop it is my addition to the text. But like, and, and, and so um, in that very 
interaction, Jesus is saying, you're going to be blind in your eyes for a little while, which is in some ways symbolic of his spiritual blindness to that moment. But after that, you're going to get baptized. And after that, you're going to become an apostle to the whole Gentile world. So the risen, ascended Jesus calls forth a new apostle, a new minister in that moment, calls Paul to be the champion of the Gentile mission. A very unlikely candidate, but it was Christ's choice. And so when Paul wants to assert his apostleship, he often refers back to this moment as God's will. When the resurrected Jesus spoke to him and called him into ministry. You know, uh, Paul's ministry was challenged in many different cities, uh, but chief among them was the city of Corinth. The Corinthians did not like Paul. They thought he was ugly and dumb and unimpressive. Um, and, and yet when he wants to assert his authority against those who would challenge it, he says this. This is 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the risen Lord? But that's how he challenges them. He said, no, 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 I am an apostle because I had an encounter with the risen Christ in which he called me to your service, called me to be the champion of the Gentile mission. So why should we listen to Paul? How do we know it's God's will that he writes what he writes? He saw the risen Jesus and was commissioned by the risen Jesus and was authorized by the risen Jesus to be that great apostle. You know, some people have rather blithely uh, and dismissively said, you know, Paul, like many of the New Testament authors, did not know that he was writing letters of enduring value. It's only an accident that they have been preserved for our use. No, um, Paul always knew that his words were time-bound, only meaningful within a first century context. He never imagined anybody would consider what he was writing to be inspired or definitive in any way. Let me counter that opinion. It's ridiculous. Of course he knew. Of course he knew that his words had enduring, inspired validity. Of course he knew that. Um, how do I know that he knew that? Well, notice the trajectory in Scripture. Notice the long story of Scripture and how God creates pivoting moments in history. Here's what he does. He calls an individual or appears to that individual in what we call a theophany, which is often an angelic appearance or some sort of appearance of God to that person. It's what he does, for example, with Abraham as the word of the Lord comes near to Abraham and says, leave your town and country and go to a place I'm going to show you. God is pivoting history at that moment. Why? Because he's about to create a new nation. Does the same thing with Moses in the burning bush. Theophany appears to Moses and says, you're no longer going to be a shepherd. Now you are going to get my people out of Dodge. They're leaving Egypt and you're the face through which I'm going to lead this movement. Does the same thing. Uh, with David, when he sets up uh, the new monarchy after Saul's demise, does the same thing with Isaiah as he appears to Isaiah in the temple vision and says, you're going to be a key prophet who ends up not only prophesying words of doom to Judah, but also words of promise that will be fulfilled in a Messiah. Whenever God wants to pivot history, he selects an individual, appears to that individual and gives them a charge. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And so every time God does that, whether it's Abraham, uh, Isaac, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, every time 
uh, God does that. He speaks to a particular person in a particular context and makes a universal appeal. Now their words, their thoughts, their ideas are not just their own. They are laced and interspliced with the power of heaven to make those unique insights that are in some ways contextual, universal in their appeal. And that's why we still live in this place with echoes of Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah. Their words come to us still. How much more so with Paul. And his calling is even greater than all the saints I have mentioned previously because he witnessed the world defining theophany. The world defining theophany is the appearance of the risen Jesus who commissions him to do something that no one has ever done before. All of them had expansive ministries, but within the 1%, that is, within the population of Israel. The risen Jesus commissions St. Paul to go to the 99%, the rest of the world. This is why in every epistle, Paul reminds his audience of his authority, that it was granted directly by Jesus. You know, I meet um, some Christians. I went to school with a guy named Shane Claiborne, who has written a lot of things, some of them helpful. Um, uh, but he wrote, he like started a movement called the Red Letter Christians, where he was saying, essentially, the words that really, really, really matter in the Bible are Jesus's. And they were often printed with red letters in the old King James Bibles. Yeah, there's even a country and western song, which all of you know how much I love country western music. Um, I'm trying, friends. I'm trying to become all things to all people, but it's hard. Um, so uh, there's a country western song called like the letters in red, and all it's a, and it's about like my life is terrible, and uh, you know I, I didn't do well in my early in my early romances, but I, I come back to the letters in red, and I'm always reading the letters in red, and and the whole notion is that somehow Jesus's words are the only things in scripture that are important and everything else is sort of the husk you know that contains the letters in red that's really bad theology really really bad theology because saint paul is christ's chosen vessel this was um somewhat in a concealed way prophesied by jesus who at the last supper said to his disciples i have more i have to tell you but you're not ready for it yet But after a while, when the spirit comes, then you're going to be ready. Well, St. Paul is part of that latter spirit ministry. Um, So to deny Paul is to deny the Christ who sent him. Paul had the right, the God-given right, to intrude then and now. And so that's why he's writing to the Ephesians. And by proxy, why he's writing to us. Because we're still under his words. So that's uh, point one. And then point two, we have an intrusive God that Paul writes about. Um, You know, Paul grew up in a very sort of deity-saturated city, but Tarsus was a pagan haven. Uh, It was kind of like Burning Man, but more religious, where people worshipped cash and porn and the market and violence and sports. We're so different now. Um, Uh, The only thing different is that they actually had, they had the sophistication of artistically communicating those things in statues. And we've just dropped the art but kept the idols, right? Um, But many people assumed that the ancient gods, the ancient power sources, were just like people. They're just like your 
Uncle George or your cousin Susan just bigger, or the person you see in the mirror at the end of the day. They're just like us, but bigger. The gods were hotheads. They were uh, capricious. They were drunks. They were experimenters upon the human race, treating us like rats to see what we would do in their cosmic laboratory. Uh, The gods were either like that, or some more sophisticated Greeks thought the gods are absent. They're sort of hiding away on Mount Olympus, totally disinterested with you. They don't care about your life. They never will. The gods at best um, are sort of the energy that keep creation going. But other than that, they're not too concerned. Well, Paul's god, by contrast, was intrusive and hyper-involved, not for the sake of of vivisectionistic experimentation. No, he was hyper-involved to kill the evil in your life and to save you from decay and death and to pardon all your sin. This God was hyper-involved, and we see his involvement in this passage in a multiplicity of ways. Um, But let me speak very briefly about the intrusive trinity, the intrusive activity of God, and the intrusive enmeshment of God. We see the trinity in this passage. Please follow along. This is verse 3, and then skip to verse 13. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Then verse 13, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So you have three, right? You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Spirit. The Father, of course, is that creative architect behind all reality who loves all reality even when that reality rejects him. You have the Son who was sent by the Father. The Son is this kingly figure, this Christic figure sent into the world, into the badlands, into history. So the Son is God-made history, yes? He falls into a timeline, into a place. That's why in the Creed we say he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We're not saying that to glorify Pontius Pilate. We're saying it to date Jesus Christ in his advent, yeah? And then later we see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God with us right now. The witness of God. God with you in this church. God with you in your sedan when you go home. God with you in a sushi restaurant. God with you in, in your awful committee meeting this week. Right? God with you right now. That's the Spirit of God. Uh, and, and so this Trinitarian God um, is hyperactive in this passage. We have the Father who sends the Son, and then the Son who sends the Spirit. And while the three are distinct, they're all unified in their dynamic, in this energy. And what is this energy? To rescue you. They're not at odds. Like the ancient gods of Mesopotamia or Greece or Rome, always warring and sparring with each other. Here we have a singular deity with three persons all on the same page, if you will, and their page is writ with crimson letters. It says rescue with your picture on it. Um, And so we have an intrusive trinity. And that intrusive trinity engages in intrusive activity. Notice all the things that God does in this passage. It doesn't say very much about what we're doing. It says a lot about what God does. I always say God in this passage is like a soccer player and that he never stops moving. It's not really my sport. It's too hard. Um, but, but God is the soccer player, right? God is the one who is hyperactive in this passage. Notice what he does. Verse 1, he calls us to himself. Verse 2, he gives us grace and peace with heaven. 
uh, and then blesses us. Verse 4, he chooses us before we choose him. Verse 5, he predestines us, and then later he adopts us. Verse 7, he forgives us and then dies for us. Verse 9, he unveils his will uh, to us. Verse 10, uh, he renews not just a nation, but the whole planet. Verse 11, he pledges to us eternal life. Verse 12, he offers the gospel to us. In verse 14, he again promises inheritance to us that when we die, we won't die. I mean, so God is the one who takes care of all of it from before you were born to well after you're gone. It is all God's work, and he has invaded to do that work. Uh, we see his intrusive activity. And lastly, we see an intrusive enmeshment and that we become melded to God, if you will. Note the repeated language in this passage of in him. Did you notice that when it was being read? In him. It said six times. He chose us in him. In him we have redemption. He will unite all things in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance. In him we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You believed in him. Now that him is a specific him. It's Jesus. And after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus comes, becomes for St. Paul and for the world a, a massive figure, a colossal figure, somebody who's larger than life, a supra-personality. Um, you know, there are some passages in the Bible, not very many, that talk about having Christ within your heart, you know, Christ in you, the hope of glory, yes? Well, most of the passages talk about not Christ being within us, but us being in Christ. Christ is the massive figure. Christ is, Christ is the oceanic figure in whom we are swimming. That's how close we are. St. Paul can say that we are now part of him. We're connected to him inextricably and forever. That, that image often makes me think of a, uh, a beautiful time in my own life where I used to go to summer camp uh, near Bedford, Pennsylvania, if you know where that is, middle of the state. And there's a big lake there. It's not beautiful, but it has pleasant memories for me. And it's called Lake Shawnee. And it was like my haven because I was with all my camp friends. And what's great about camp friends is you're not with them long enough to grow irritated with them. So you still like them. Uh, for a few days. So I was with the friends that I liked and with really nice counselors. And and it was a contrast from my own home at the time, which was which was experiencing many ruptures. And uh, my parents were very near a divorce. And, and I thought that this time, I was in, I think, sixth grade, when I go home, it's likely my father will not be there, which was correct. Um, and so it was, it was my haven. Uh, away from the chaos. And I just remember floating in that lake, being in that place, and being kind of healed by it, restored by it, feeling better because of it. I was immersed in a greater reality. And maybe you've had a memory like that, where you were in this place of tranquility and peace, and, and you were sort of immersed in that sense. Uh, that's how I often think of being in Christ, is being in Lake Shawnee, right? Where all the problems are floating away and where everything is good again, and I'm in the place of restoration. Well, that's some, something akin to what it means to be in Christ. So we are in him, says St. Paul. And so we have an intrusive trinity of engaging in intrusive activity and intrusive enmeshment with us. And so in chapter 1, Paul introduces his God as an intruder, an intervener, the hero of history, and the rescuer of villains. And I'm just wondering, even conceptually, can we handle such a thing? Really, can we handle a God who doesn't leave us alone? A God who insists 
a God who is the hound of heaven, a God who pursues, a God who invades, a God who intervenes, a God who interrupts our course. You know, I, I think that many people want God to be something like a home alarm system. Yeah, we have one. I think it still works. It has a very loud alarm anytime a window is open too long or a door is ajar for too long. But sometimes we think of God that way. Like God exists to protect our self-made system. Like God exists to hallow our well-defined lives, to keep us safe within our preferred enclosures, to keep going what we think is already good. God is there to defend the very things we treasure. So God is at best an augmentation that keeps life going according to our own terms. Or other people want God to be merely like passive, always waiting for us, like responding only to our assertions, like waiting till we're ready for him. Uh, there, there are many people that um, speak about God uh, as only being able to be active if we let him do things. Just for what it's worth, you, you don't let God do anything because he's like, God, right? Like, it's borderline blasphemous language to think of God in those terms. He is not on your leash. Like, um, I think we have to be more careful with this language. Other people say silly things like this. Well, God is a gentleman. Have you ever heard this nonsense? God is a gentleman, and he will always wait for our permission before he works. In a word, no. Like, n- no. God is not a gentleman. God is a very good-natured burglar who breaks into your house. Um, God breaks the alarm system and stands in our living room. But God doesn't wait. He doesn't wait till you're ready, or he would wait forever, and we would be damned. Like, he doesn't wait for us to figure it out, to have the right intuition, to ask the right question, to get the theology straight, to repent enough, to, like, figure life out, to, like, clean up our act a little bit, to be existentially prepared for the visitation of Yahweh. Like, he doesn't do that. He doesn't wait. He's not going to wait. God in Christ is too kind to do that. He is the good-natured burglar who breaks into the system. He does not wait. The intruder is here. Friends, he is here to steal He is here to rob from us all our cheap love, all our fake little tin gods, and our relentless capacity for self-harm. God in Christ, whether we want him to or not, comes to muck up our religion and our irreligion. And he'll replace it with sheer gorgeousness. It's just what he does. He'll get rid of our crappy furniture and give us something good in response. He'll take away our poison food and gives us something that feeds us uh, unto eternity. And he takes away joys that only last a moment in order to give joys that endure. Friends, are we prepared mentally, psychologically, spiritually for that intervention, for having to make a mess to alter things in order that we become eternally healthy? Easy to say yes to that, too hastily, sure. But it is no easy thing because if you get right with God, you will become wrong with the world. And that is not easy. Have you ever noticed this? Like if you start to get healthy on the inside and then you have to deal with your maybe not so healthy family or your friend circle that isn't so healthy, they prefer the unhealthy you because that's the one they know. And that's the one that gives them their dysfunctional equilibrium. But here you are, encountering Jesus Christ, encountering the health that he embodies. And all of a sudden, they don't like that. 
They don't like the you that stands up for integrity or truth. They don't like the you that's compassionate to, to idiots. They don't like that. They don't like the patient you. They want the angry you. They want the addicted you. They want the controllable you. Yeah? But you're not that person anymore. And I'll look out because the burglar of paradise has just stolen some of those ten gods away, but he'll replace them with something more beautiful. Well, with our celestial intervener, all our houses are open, and he is now standing in our living room. I guess we'll just have to see what happens next. Amen. Oh, they took your life. They could not.